Welcome to the Everyday Health Podcast. Join Dr. Carlos as he takes a broad look at the medical world. This podcast focuses on the health topics that affect everyone. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we have a great guest, Dr. George T. Grossberg. From Sam, he's a Samuel W. Fordyce professor at the, and director of geriatric psychiatry at St. Louis University. And today, we're going to be talking about microbiomes and Alzheimer's. What's microbiome? Well, Dr. Grossberg will tell us all about it. Before we get started, make sure to share, subscribe, and hit that like button. You know, we like it. So let's not waste any more time. Welcome, Dr. Grossberg, to the show. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you, Dr. Carlos. It's great to be with you. <laughs> thank you very much for being here. This is a fascinating topic. Is that, you know, when I looked at your article, I can't remember where I saw it, Psychiatry News or something of that sort. And I was reading it and I thought, I have to have this guy. Ah, oh, this is really amazing stuff because you don't hear about it very much. But I guess the first question is, what's microbiome? Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's an area that's really exploded. Um, it's really come um, into presence just the last three or four years as we're learning more and more about kind of the, the entirety of microorganisms that live specifically in the human body. Uh, we have 10 times more bacteria and viruses and fungi and microbial cells than human cells. And these organisms, most of which live in the gut, in the gastrointestinal tract, uh, really influ influence human physiology in positive and, and negative ways and have a major, a significant impact on our health, on health and disease. That's some of the things I guess I'll be looking at as we, I mean, I'll be asking you about is, are we talking about receptors? Because I know it affects the, the nervous system. It affects the endocrine system. It hits a lot of different areas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so the question is, you know, What's the, the, the role of the, the microbiome, um, which has been called, by the way, the second genome. So when oh. we talk about genomes, we all have our own basically um, genetic profile. Well, guess what? Our microbiome, our bacteria, our microorganisms that live throughout the body, but primarily in the gastrointestinal tract, also are called the second genome. Basically, it's unique to every individual. Um, and it's something we can use to profile an individual. But the role of the microbiome and the role that it plays when it gets out of balance, that's called dysbiosis, is really very, very varied. So for example, um, microbial imbalance, imbalance of the, the bacteria primarily in our gastrointestinal tract, in the GI tract, has been linked to all kinds of diseases that may play a role, not just in Alzheimer's disease, but in a variety of cancers, um, in, in depression, of rock, inflammatory diseases. One of the things that's really unique about the bacteria in the gut is how it communicates with the immune system. And it can actually modulate our ability to fight infection. And if it's out of whack, it might actually contribute 
to inflammation and inflammatory change throughout the body. The major wow. example of this are what are called inflammatory bowel diseases, like colitis or uh, irritable bowel syndrome and so on. We think that in large measure, when there is an imbalance of the bacterial composition as part of this microbiome, you'll see a flare-up in colitis or inflammatory bowel disease. And by addressing that imbalance, and we'll talk about therapeutic interventions that might make sense, we can actually help inflammation. Now, you also kind of alluded to the notion, not just that there's a relationship with the immune system, but the, the microbiome and the microbiota of the gut do some really good things. So for example, they manufacture a number of vitamins. They manufacture the B vitamins. They manufacture vitamin K. Uh, they manufacture natural analgesics that the body makes for pain. Uh, they also make what are called uh, antioxidants and can have a significant beneficial role as being, by being anti-inflammatory with kind of inflammatory disorders. Now, of course, they do more mundane things too. They kind of, they break down or kind of um, basically metabolize uh, food that we take in. There is that communication with the um, immune system. And then the whole idea with the microbiome is to populate as much of it as we can with friendly or healthy bacteria and avoid that imbalance or dysbiosis, which can predispose to inflammation and to disease. Amazing stuff. Now, I know yes. some people refer to it as gut-brain access. And exactly, when I was... exactly. So that's okay. so important. So again, it's something we didn't know about 10 years ago. I mean, I can oh, tell wow. you it's been longer than that since I went to medical school. Of course, we didn't even know what the microbiome was and what relationship it had to health and disease. And even 10 years ago, we didn't really appreciate that what happens in the gut can affect what happens in the brain. And I'll give you a really, really uh, good example of it. Um, and we think a lot of this relates also to things like depression, things like dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, which seem to have an inflammatory component. That when you have the bad bacteria, basically you have this dysbiosis in the gut these inflammatory factors cross, go through from the blood, cross the blood-brain barrier, actually go to the brain and can cause inflammatory changes in the brain, which may contribute to a variety of brain disorders. Everything from depression, Parkinson's disease. We just wrote an article on the relationship between um, dysbiosis, imbalance of the microbiome and Parkinson's disease and how they may, wow. that may accelerate the progression of Parkinson's disease. And of course, my area of primary interest being Alzheimer's disease, we've known for a long time that one of the reasons that cell di cells die in Alzheimer's disease is inflammation. What we're also seeing, which is very fascinating, in animal models, mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, that this very same process in the gut, this imbalance, dysbiosis, not only can trigger inflammatory changes in the brain, but may actually contribute to the plaques and tangles, to the manufacture of the plaques and tangles, 
at least in animal models, and we think it may also be happening in humans, which are the primary pathologic, neuropathologic features of Alzheimer's disease. And then, interestingly, when you address the, the microbial balance in the gut toward the positive bacteria, the protective bacteria, then you begin to see less of those neuropathologic changes like the plaques and the tangles. Again, this is in animal models, but again, we start with animal models. This is all very early. Uh, nobody claims they understand everything in this area, uh, myself <laughs> in particular, but in general. So it's, but it's very exciting, very exciting. Absolutely, that's amazing. You, you read my mind because I was getting, when you were talking about Alzheimer's, um, I was getting right into that area for amyloid buildup and plaque buildup, and that was fascinating. I know that so the, really yeah, the other, the other thing that's really interesting and, and it has yeah. affected my, my day-to-day practice is that because of this kind of thinking in Alzheimer's disease, that the, the dysbiosis, the imbalance of the bad bacteria, which may affect what's happening in the brain, may contribute to risk for Alzheimer's disease or may contribute to progression of Alzheimer's disease. The question became, can we intervene in the gut with maybe something like a probiotic? Um, oh, and, wow. you know, there, are, there are probiotics people can buy you know, at the drugstore, at the health food store. You can even do it by getting the cultured yogurts or uh, a variety of fermented kinds of foods. So if you look, for example, at some of the yogurts at the grocery store, they're more of the Greek kind of yogurts. It will say on the label that these are enriched with particularly lactobacilli or lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. Those are the two most common healthy, anti-inflammatory, healthy, protective bacteria that we want to build up. And probiotics do the same thing. Okay. So the question becomes, is it a good idea based on the growing evidence that we're all kind of learning about to recommend something like that to people at risk for Alzheimer's disease who are aging, maybe have a family history, and then particularly for people who are in the incipient stages of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, we, we do recommend, you know, the current therapies and Maybe toward the end, I can share with you my current recipe for people at risk for Alzheimer's disease who are already in the early stages. But I'm adding to that recipe a probiotic or think about maybe that cultured yogurt every day to help address the possible role that the microbiome, the gut microbiota may play in cell death through inflammation uh, in a disease like Alzheimer's disease. So that's kind of part of our our recipe. Uh, It's very interesting because I've been doing this for a little while now. And as I continue to look to the research that's being done, I actually found a couple of studies that are in progress. Uh, You can look these up at uh, clinicaltrials.gov, looking at a probiotic treatment intervention for people in the very earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease versus placebo to see if that alone may make a difference uh, in slowing it down, in decreasing the, the rate of progression, or maybe even decreasing the risk of Alzheimer's disease. 
And of course, they're very, very inexpensive, affordable. You know, everybody likes to have a yogurt. I mean, it's, it's really something that's very benign. So why not? Why Can not? Can you imagine yeah. <laughs> something why so not? simple as having yeah. yogurt? What's wrong with that? But, you know, yeah. again, there's no downside. Do we have all the evidence that's going to make a big difference? No. But because there's no downside, at least theoretically, it makes sense. It looks very, very attractive. It's already being studied in randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. Uh, we'll see, of course, what those show. Um, it's very, very um, tempting to recommend, and I am recommending it. Fascinating stuff. I can't wait to see the results of those studies. Uh, Dr. Grossberg, you know, as I was looking at it, I know there's a lot of bi-directional communication, and I do a lot of work with, um, I consult with law enforcement, special forces, things of that nature. So it triggered in my mind anxiety disorders, the HPA access. Uh, what do we know about that in regards to that communication between back and forth? Does it make well, it when, worse? Or? You know, I mean, it can make it. I mean, I think what you, you mentioned at the very beginning, you mentioned the, the gut-brain axis. Okay, so we now know that there is direct communication between the microbiota of the gut and the brain. Okay, and that communication can go in a protective fashion. It can also go in a pathologic fashion. So the pathologic fashion would be when you have that imbalance, that kind of dysbiosis in the gut, or in a sense, kind of the bad bacteria overwhelm the good bacteria, and that can contribute to pathology, pathology in the brain, as well as pathology in other parts of the body. Um, when you have a good, healthy balance, then the immune system is functioning at a higher level. So the immune system then can protect the brain. And we know, as you mentioned, the HPA access, and we don't really understand yet how intimately and in what direct or indirect ways the microbiome interacts with the HPA access, but we think it, it's there. We know there's evidence with depression, some evidence with anxiety, not quite as much, but again, we're still learning a whole lot more. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention, which, which was one of the reasons why I got interested in this area a number of years ago, was I attend several months a year on our geriatric psychiatry, a geriatric inpatient unit. Okay. And one of the diseases that we run into in older adults, not uncommonly, um, is Clostridium difficile colitis, C. diff. C. diff. <laughs> yeah. We know that C. diff is very common among older adults who are immune compromised. Maybe been on, they've been on a lot of antibiotics. Um, maybe their immune system is weakened. They're cachectic. They're not very strong in general. And it's a very severe, horrible colitis, inflammatory bowel disease with watery, chronic diarrhea, fluid wasting. It can actually be a killer. Often people die from treatment-resistant C. diff infections. The good news is, the good news is we can isolate this bacteria from the colon, from the, the stool, so we know what the cause is. And we have really good antibiotics some of them have to be given intravenously, parenterally, but in the majority of instances, we can control it with powerful antibiotics. But maybe about 20% of the time, uh, 10 to 20, depending on data you look at, the antibiotics don't work. And the diarrhea and this, this horrible symptomatology continues. 
So ordinarily, there'd be no hope for those individuals and they could die from C. diff. But what do we do? We do have hope. We basically have what are called fetal transplantation, fetal microbial transplantation. Using colonoscopy, we take basically stool, microscopic amounts of stool from healthy, younger, usually non-immune compromised individuals. And we infuse it into the colon of this elderly sick patient with C. diff colitis and horrible diarrhea as a way to kind of reestablish a healthy microbial balance in the gut. Wow. To help the microbiota and the microbiome. And guess what? About 90% of the time, these patients recover. Where the antibiotics oh. fail, the microbiome intervention works. So when I saw that, and that became you know, common that we were doing this. In fact, there are now, they're called stool banks, <laughs> repositories of healthy stool, okay? And for people who are younger, not immune compromised all over the country, that this worked, it made me think that there has to be, there has to be a relationship between what's happening in the gut and what's happening with a variety of different diseases. So that was to me very, very impressive. And that's an ongoing kind of benefit. The other thing that, that really um, struck me as something that was very positive, and this was about a year or two before COVID, right now this activity is a bit on hold, starting to kind of uh, be reestablished uh, since COVID, is I was reading reports from China. So um, there's a, a small, a pharmaceutical company uh, in Shanghai. It's called, I think it's called Shanghai Valley or something pharmaceutical, but a small uh, pharmaceutical company in, in, in China that was experimenting with a substance. It's called oligomannate. It's a substance that's derived from marine algae, like from seaweed, basically. Oh, there you go. That, that works, that works on the microbiome. So it does in animal models, they first tried it in animal models and they found that this, this microbiome-based therapy did several things. Again, by reestablishing a good balance of the gut microbiome, what it did was it had anti-inflammatory effects throughout the body, but particularly in the brain because this substance crossed the blood-brain barrier, number one. Secondly, they found that in animal models, it really decreased the formation of plaque in the brain, the amyloid plaque, which we think is a major contributor to why cells die. And there were even some antioxidant effects, decreased uh, free radical toxicity. Again, all, only in animals. But then they went on to do a large, several hundred patients, I think it's seven or 800, I forget, but they went on to do a large placebo-controlled study in humans and people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. And they used as the gold standard efficacy measure, a measure called the ADAS-COG, which is the Alzheimer's disease assess assessment scale, the cognitive portion. It's used in all the major clinical trials. The new drug that was recently approved by the FDA, aducanumab, they use that same scale to determine whether the disease would be slowed by that intervention. 
And they did initially, I think, looked at it in three months, then looked at it six months, nine months, and 12 months. And they did it versus placebo, and they found highly statistically significant benefits, improvement in cognition with this microbiome-based therapy. Wow. Uh, their plan is to bring it, their plan was before COVID, was to bring it to the United States for further study. I have been in touch with the company and with their chief uh, scientific officer, and we're hoping to be able to study that at St. Louis University when studies really get back to kind of full steam ahead. Right now with COVID and various interruptions, it's been hard, but we're starting to reinstitute most of our clinical trials. So another example of how, as you mentioned earlier, we, we see this gut-brain connection and that things that we can do in the gut vis-a-vis the microbiome may have benefits for the brain and for brain-related disorders or disturbances. Fascinating stuff. Really fascinating. Again, folks, this is Dr. George T. Grossberg. Dr. Grossberg, I guess a couple of questions popped up. One, we, we talk about the communication between the microbiome and the brain. How is it communicating? Are we talking about neurotransmitters, nerves? How are they communicating here? Okay, so there are different ways. So the communication we think occurs largely through the bloodstream. Um, and it may be certain either neurochemicals or what are called proteases, certain enzymes that these microbes secrete. So let me give you a really good example. This is a great question, by the way, a very important question. And we don't fully understand any of these things. We're, we're, we're in the infancy of understanding all this, but progress is so exciting. Um, we have our big Alzheimer's meetings, the international meetings coming up later this month. And I'll be attending them, presenting some things virtually this year, although there'll be a small meeting in Denver for people that are able to make it to uh, in-person. None of the overseas people can make it in. So it'll be largely virtual. But I'm very excited to see what people around the world are doing and what's the new research related to the microbiome and what new things we're learning. Because when I'm developing my lecture on the microbiome, my slides, I update them weekly. Really? Literally, something is happening somewhere in the world, new understanding, new research all the time. And to back to your question, so how do they communicate? How does this communication occur? And a really good example of it that I think helps me to understand it and will help you know, our listeners uh, to understand it too, is to think about the potential relationship between periodontal disease. You might have read about this. It's in all the newspapers when it was first discovered, gum disease, Again, usually a disease in later life. You don't find a lot of teenagers having gum disease. They're having braces, you know. On their I hope not. <laughs> you know, later in life, it, it's unfortunately not so rare. So there was some thinking that there may be a relationship between gum disease and Alzheimer's disease. So how did that come to be? What, what's that all about? So a number of bacteria, most of which again originated in the gut, a number of bacteria are responsible in the oral cavity for periodontal disease. The main bacteria uh, is called, it's a long name, it's called Porphyromonas gingivalis, or gingiva. But so I call it, you know, P. gingivalis, Porphyry, um, yeah, gingivalis. So this P. gingivalis is the main bacteria that causes 
periodontal or gum disease. Well, guess what? The same bacteria, Porphyromonas gingival, P. gingivalis, biology people about this, we're trying to look at this more carefully and more closely. In, clo in about over 90% of Alzheimer's patients' brains, in close proximity to the plaques and tangles. Now, we know that this bacteria at least causes inflammatory change. Could this bacteria oh, wow. be related to causality? Could it be contributing to cell death and to the changes that are part of the underlying pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease? We don't know. But again, we have animal models. In animal models of the disease, we see that the same bacteria can accelerate the formation of the same plaque, that amyloid plaque that we see in Alzheimer's disease and the neurofilary oh. tangles. And it's accompanied, at least in animal models, by cognitive decline, accelerated cognitive decline. So again, very intriguing. So what's the next step? Well, do we, do we have drugs or medications that can counteract these changes that we think are secondary to P. gingivalis. And there's, again, I'm waiting to see if they present anything at the meetings coming up. There's a small company in San Francisco. It's actually a small biotech company that has a blocker that can block the protease. So this bacteria manufactures, synthesizes a protease, an enzyme, that is toxic, that can cause inflammatory change. They have a drug that blocks, it's a protease inhibitor, it blocks this enzyme and may be able to serve it to have a protective role. They've already tested it in animal models and found that yes, it does seem to have a protective role. It protects the brain from this toxic protease enzyme that's secreted by this P. gingivalis. And now they're getting ready to do small uh, human studies, which is all very intriguing. What makes it even oh. more interesting, what makes it even more interesting is that the same uh, bacteria, the P. gingivalis and the protease that it manufactures is also found in cardiovascular diseases. So for example, they found in mouse model, I'm sorry, in rabbit models, rabbits evidently uh, are easy to induce arterial sclerosis, particularly kind of arteriosclerotic change in the coronary arteries. They found that the same bacteria accelerates atherosclerotic change in the coronary arteries in animal models. And their blocker may be able to protect against accelerated atherosclerosis. Now, how does that relate to Alzheimer's disease? The way it relates is that we've been saying and knowing for a long, long time that what's good for the heart is good for the brain, and what's bad for the heart is bad for the brain. Namely, cardiovascular risk factors, things like hypertension, not well controlled, obesity, smoking, diabetes, lipids, you know, high cholesterol, and so on. These are not only bad for the brain, are bad for the heart, but they're also bad for the brain. So again, forming an intimate connection between microbes, bacteria that originate in the gut and what's happening not just in the brain, but also perhaps vis-a-vis -vis the cardiovascular system. Uh, and the notion of trying to block 
these toxic proteases and maybe having a protective or beneficial effect is already here, at least in animal models. Very neat. That's fascinating. It really is. It kind of gives me the urge to go brush my teeth, but that's okay, so really- that's part of the, so that's, <laughs> I'm going to say, I wanted to save this to the end, but we're almost at the end. So I wanted to share with you because it, you brought this up. That's exactly right. It's not just brushing teeth, but flossing, flossing. Yeah. I can tell you when I was growing up, I, I had a, a family dentist. His son is my dentist now. Okay. Fantastic dentist. This is a long time ago. We're talking about, you know, 50, 60 years ago, 50 some years ago. I remember to this day when you sat in his waiting room, he had a big sign. And what it said was, you don't have to floss your teeth. Only the ones that you want to keep. <laughs> the message is that if you don't floss and, and start flossing in earlier life, when you get into later life, you're going to get gum disease and your teeth are going to fall out. And that is never more true than currently. So when I think about, and I, I wrote this down because I want to share this with our audience, what I call my recipe for Alzheimer's disease patients and mm. for at-risk individuals for Alzheimer's disease prevention. And I've got several things on here. Let me read it for you. Sure. Number one, okay. Lifestyle modification. So what we're talking about is activity in four spheres. Keep physically active, the role of exercise. Keep mentally active, don't be brain dormant. Keep spiritually active, if that's an important part of your life. Be spiritually, go to church, synagogue, whatever. And then lastly, social activity. No, don't be a hermit, don't be a couch potato. Treatment of cardiovascular risk factors is number two, because what's good for the heart is good for the brain. That would include smoking, obesity, hypertension, high cholesterol, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, anything that contributes to cardiovascular disease is bad for the brain. If you treat that, that's gonna be potentially protective. Oral hygiene, your point, oral hygiene may be very important because of that gut-brain connection that you mentioned earlier. We think the Mediterranean diet, the mind diet, these protective diets would be also very, very useful they're anti-inflammatory. A number of supplements may potentially make sense. We mentioned the probiotic, perhaps some of the antioxidant vitamins like vitamin E. We do recommend a B-complex multivitamin once a day. And then there's some data emerging on turmeric, on curcumin, that, that may be anti-inflammatory, may be useful, but again, all the data is not in. We do have combination therapy, the symptomatic therapies, we have the first FDA-approved potentially disease-modifying therapy with aducanumab. And then there's one factor, unfortunately, that's really hard to control, emerging now, risk factor, air pollution. Air pollution. People living in polluted big cities, we're seeing this especially in countries you know, like China and India, other parts that have not yet done as well as we have with I mean, we've got a ways to go to. There are toxins in air and air pollution that are bad for the brain. And then, of course, the last factor, which we are not yet able to modify, we're working on it, is your genes, is genetic vulnerability. But again, we're working on genetic uh, therapies for a variety of disorders, including Alzheimer's disease, but we're not yet able to change our genes. So that's my 
recipe right now. It's a great recipe. If I can ask you one more question, if that's all right. Um, where does alcohol play a role? Because I know alcohol does some destructive stuff in the bacteria yeah, in the mouth. Yeah, you're right. I mean, alcohol is a whole, actually, you've got to do a whole half hour on that one. <laughs> it's a very interesting sort because there's no doubt that alcohol in, in significant uh, quantities is neurotoxic. No doubt. Bad for the brain, bad for you know, the liver, bad for the cardiovascular system as well. But in mild to moderate amounts, there's actually some evidence that may play a protective role. So what I recommend for my patients, if you're an older adult and you're worried about Alzheimer's disease, which is a very common concern these days, you're coming to see me and you're not a drinker, you never have been, I'm not gonna recommend that you all of a sudden start drinking at age 75. On the other hand, if you're in your middle years and you're having for men equivalent of one to two drinks a day for women, one drink a day. I'm okay with that because they may actually, that may actually have some benefits. The problem is when I tell people that I'm okay with you having that, you know, glass of wine with dinner, uh, maybe cocktail before dinner, they like me. They say, Oh, that's great. Thank you. Dr. Grace. You're a really good doctor. We really like you. <laughs> then they go home. Then they go home and they say, well, you know, if maybe one or two drinks is okay, and maybe three or four is even better. And next thing you know, you've got an alcohol problem on your hands. And we know that the problem of alcohol abuse and misuse is huge in our culture, much, much bigger than the opiate epidemic, which is getting all the PR, which is horrible, but getting all the PR. Alcohol-related uh, deaths, alcohol-related suicides, alcohol-related medical morbidities, alcohol-related divorces, broken families, uh, lost jobs, much, much, much bigger in our society than anything as far as drugs. So we obviously are concerned about that. So we're, we're very cautious about how we recommend uh, alcohol use. That's a great point. It's funny what they focus on. Um, you know, it's interesting because you made me think about processed foods and sugars, and that's going to have to play a big role too, isn't it? And they're not part of the Mediterranean diets. No. So, <laughs> so neither is fast food. <laughs> so that doesn't mean that people don't eat those things. It doesn't mean they can never have those things. But I literally have patients that live on those things. And that's bad for your heart, bad for your brain. Not a good idea. We could be here all day, Dr. Grossberg. <laughs> So much fun. Uh, really good stuff. Um, really appreciate it. Anywhere we can go to find out more information about what you're up to, uh, what yeah, research is going I, on? I think the St. Louis University you know, has a very nice uh, website, the Medical Center. But what I usually recommend you know, for people to go to, uh, for professional people in, in the sciences, they know to go to PubMed which has all the latest research and put in, you know, microbiome and Alzheimer's and you'll get that. And then if you want to know what's happening relative to treatment approaches, clinicaltrials.gov will have it. And you put in a series of prompts. You could put in like, you know, Alzheimer's disease, microbiome, and then you'll see what's being done with probiotics and uh, with this oligomanate that's coming from China and so on. So a lot of good places to look. It's a really early area. In other words, we're learning more and more every week. I'm updating my slides every week. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> anyway, and I'll be happy to talk with you more. You know, it's been fun. Absolutely. Love to bring it back. And when's that conference in Denver or the, or the virtual uh, it's one? It's going to be in a couple of weeks. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Actually toward the middle latter part of the month, this okay. month. Might have yeah. to bring it back the in Alzheimer's August. Alzheimer's Association, AAIC, Alzheimer's Association International Conference. 
Yeah, we might have to bring it back in a, in a month. <laughs> I'll have a lot more. Believe me, I will have a lot yeah. more information after that, and all my slides will be updated after that. I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. It's, it's international, so you're going to have a lot of different types of studies. And a lot of the best work huh. that's being done on the microbiome, and various reasons for this, you have to do stool sampling. It's not always the most pleasant work to do. It's actually coming out of Asia, Asian countries, Korea, South Korea, uh, China, uh, some of the countries in Asia. Is there a reason for that, do you think? or Japan, a lot from Japan. No, I think they were just on it early, and uh, you mm. know they're uh, pretty assiduous. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much again, Dr. Grossberg, for being here. Great to be with you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Make sure to hit that share and like button. We truly appreciate it.